Let's bow our heads for just a moment of silent prayer. Amen. I want to read you another text. You've just heard the one that says, Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Is that a good text? Let me read you another one. This is Matthew 24, verse 12 and 13. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Endurance. Matthew chapter 4, 16 and 17. This is the parable about the sower. And it's about the seed that landed among the stones. And these are they which are sown on stony ground, who, when they heard the word, immediately received it with gladness. How many like that? They heard the word, they received it with gladness. But verse 17 is the saddest text in the Bible. It says, they have no root in themselves, and so endure but for a time afterward, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. How many agree that's sad? So this is a, a sermon about endurance. And the way that I learned it was a very hard lesson. Uh, several years ago, uh, Elder Hobbinick visited my home. How many know who Elder Hobbinick is? He would take the academy kids and some of the uh, kids in high school around the conference to Mexico to build churches. And one day he came and he said, I'm looking for someone who has a bus driver's license because we're leaving for Mexico in a week and my assistant driver just called and says he can't go. And I says, well, I almost have a license. So I finished and I got the license. I went to Mexico. First time I'd been on a mission trip and I thought, boy, that's where, how many have been on a mission trip? All right. How many agree with me? It's a hard, it's, it's hard work, but it's a good experience. Amen. And I came back and I thought, oh, I like doing this. So the next year, about the same time, I called Elder Hobnick. I says, are you going to Mexico again? He says, yes. I says, do you need a driver? He said, yes. I says, I'll volunteer. I want to go as a driver. So I went with him again as a driver. Went to a little place in Mexico called Huizachi, dirty little town out in the desert. And again, I had a marvelous time working with them. When we got back from that mission trip, Elder Hobnick said, I, that's my last one. I'm not going to do any more. He said, you need to do them. Now, if you know anything about Pastor Stoffer's personality, I like doing mission trips, but I'm not the kind of guy to be in charge. I remember when I was in the academy, one time they put me in charge of getting a banquet ready for the girls. Now, I had a staff, but I was the guy in charge. And when that got done, I thought, I never want to do this again <laughs> because if it, if it fails, it's your fault. Well, anyway, he said, we want you to do the mission trip. I says, no, you find somebody else to be in charge. I don't like to be in charge. I'll go along and I'll help all of I can and I'll share with them everything I've learned, but I don't want to be in charge. And I thought that's the final word. Well, about a month later, uh, Mr. Brown from the principal at the academy called me and he says, we've been looking for someone to do the mission trip and Elder Hominick tells us that you don't want to, but he says, if you don't do it, there won't be one. We can't find anybody to be in charge. That's a guilt trip. And I thought, oh, man, they need to go. All right, I said. With fear and trembling, I'll be in charge. So I started planning. I thought, oh, I want to plan this well. I don't want anything to go wrong. And, boy, I made all kinds of plans. I, I called ahead. I got the insurance already because if you ever travel to Mexico, you know you can't get across the border unless you have Mexican insurance on your car. 
And I don't remember all the rest I did. That was 19 years ago. But I planned and planned and figured out where we were going to stay and sleep over on the way down, and I had everything planned. And then we left on the trip. And for the first 24 hours, everything went, you know, according to plan. The next day, we were supposed to arrive in Keene, Texas, and the college was going to let us eat supper there free. And since I was also in charge of the money, free supper for 50 people was a good idea. And they says, be there about 5 o'clock. Well, we were still in Oklahoma, and we were on schedule, and we were going to get there at the right time. And there was a bus. We were using an old nursing home bus. It had a governor on it, and it would only go 55 miles an hour. We had two other vehicles, both of them pickups, both all of them pulling trailers with suit luggage and everything in it. And there was one guy, and I won't tell you his name, but he became my friend later, but not on this trip. And he was the kind of guy, he had a fuzz buster in his pickup, and he liked to go fast. But I said, you know, let's all stay together. And we all had CBs in our vehicles, and he kept calling, can't you make that thing go any faster? Because he was used to going at least 75, and here we were putting along at 55. And uh, one of his weaknesses was Dairy Queen. And we went through this town, and he came on the CB, fortunately not loud enough that all the kids in the bus, because I didn't want to stop, because every time we'd stop, it'd be a half hour before we get going. How many of you know what I'm talking about? When you have that many people... He said, well, I'm going to stop and get an ice cream cone. I says, you go ahead, but I'm, I'm going to keep going. He said, I'll catch you, no problem. Well, he didn't. And we got on into Texas, but not to Keene. And I thought, well, by now, him going 75 and us going 55, he should have caught it with So I pulled over to, into a gas station and bought all the kids ice cream there. And we waited at that gas station for four hours, right where we could see the interstate, and he never came by. And then I thought, well, maybe he went a different way because there was another way. It was longer to get to Keene, but you didn't have to go through Dallas. You went through Fort Worth instead. And I thought, well, let's go. And we kept calling on the, on the CB, and we could never get him. And none of us had cell phones then. And so we went on to Keene, and rather than getting there at 5 for supper, we got there at 9. So I'm already stressed out, and I'm in charge, and I have lost somebody. Well, just as we pulled into Keene at 9 o'clock, he got close enough on the CB, and we could hear him. And so he met us there in Keene, and I says, as I'm a pastor, see, instead of saying, where have you been? I, where have you been? Well, he was going fast, and the trailer that he was, he was pulling, we had borrowed from the camp, and it had a flat tire. So he pulled over on the side of the road, and in order to change the tire, you know where the flat tire, you know where the spare tire was, don't you? Right on the bottom of the trailer. See, I didn't load all the stuff to get the tire out, and he changed the tire and put the spare on, and what he didn't know, what none of us knew, that was one of those, t- those trailers that when you change the tire, you go 10 miles, you stop, and you tighten the lug nuts up again. How many of you guys ever heard that? When you, or you tighten them up. And he hadn't done that. So after he went about 30 miles, the tire came off and passed him on the road and dropped the, 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 t- the trailer down on the hub. And uh, he pulled over and he got the tire, but it had messed up the hub so bad that he couldn't put the tire back on the hub. How many know what I'm talking about? Ripped off the threads and stuff. So he had to shop around and found a a place that came out and sold him a new hub so he could put the tire on right out there in the gas. And that's why he was four hours behind. And I was stressed out. And I said a couple times to my wife, fortunately she was with me on this trip, I turned to her and I say, I'm not ever going to do this again. This is too stressful. Well, anyway, we had an appointment to stay in the Junior Academy in San Antonio, Texas, which is 250 miles south of Keene. We thought we'd eat supper. We could be down there by 10, 10.30 and get a good night's sleep. 
But I thought, we have no place to stay. We've got to go on. So we got into San Antonio about 1 o'clock the next morning. And they told us where the... Well, we had to wake somebody up, and they led us to the school. And we slept there in San Antonio in the school. The next morning, I said, we've got to get up at 6 because we have got to be down at the border by noon, and that day was Friday. And if you ever cross the border, you know they slow you up because they'll give you all kinds of hassle, and you've got to fill out all kinds of papers and everything. And I didn't want to do that on Sabbath. I'd made up my mind, I'm not going to do that on Sabbath. But if we get to the border by noon, we might get it done. And then it was a three-hour drive on to the youth camp in Mexico where we were going to go and meet with probably 200 other groups, well, 200 other people that were all going down to build churches, and we have what they call orientation. We get down there Friday evening, they have worship, and we meet all these other people. And then we leave for our, our mission site on Sunday morning, get there Sunday afternoon. And so I thought, well, we can get to the border by noon, maybe by 3, maybe by 6, we'll be at the, at the place. And so while they're reading breakfast at 6, I went out just to check on the trailer that had broke down. And what nobody knew, even the guy drying, is when the trailer, when the tire came off and dropped it down, it had bent the axle. And he had put a brand new tire on there because the spare tire had gotten messed up. And it had been going down the highway crooked. And it had wore that tire clear out, and the, and the steel, steel threads were showing through. And I looked at the axle, I saw it bent, and I said, there's no way, we can't take this, Mexi- this trailer into Mexico. So we got the yellow pages, and we got on the phone, and finally by noon, we found another trailer. We had traded in our old trailer for that one, 500 bucks extra. There goes my budget, and we're late. And uh, we had to take the box that we'd built to put the stuff in. We had to make it down because this trailer was smaller. And then the stuff heaped up and we had to tie it all down. We finally got away about 1 o'clock on Friday. And it was five hours. And I knew we'd be getting at 6. Now, we were going to meet a man at the border that I knew down there. He could speak both languages, English. And we needed a translator. And that was our translator. And I called him and I says, we're running late. We're not going to be there at noon. We're going to be there at 6. But I thought, well, if God really blesses Sun wasn't going down until 7.30. If everything works out, maybe we can get through and God will bless us. We'll be driving on Sabbath, but at least we won't be doing all the hassle at the border on Sabbath. So I says, go buy Sanborn's insurance, pick up our insurance papers because you can't get through the border without insurance papers. Did I always tell you that? Pick up those insurance papers and we'll meet you at the Walmart in McAllen and we'll just go on across and maybe... So around 6 o'clock, we got to the Walmart and the translator wasn't there. And uh, I called his house, and the phone didn't. Nobody answered the phone. And so I got the checking, and I found out McAllen has two Walmarts. Now, I'd always thought of McAllen as being a little dusty frontier town. It's not. There's over 100,000 people live in that town. And on Friday afternoon, how many know what a town with 100,000 people in it, what the traffic is like? Well, what I did, I thought, well, there's another Walmart. We'll stay here at this one in case he shows up. But the other guy, not the one who ate the ice cream, but the other guy at the pickup in a trailer, I says, you go to go to Walmart. We found out where it was and see if he's over there. So he left. And in McAllen, Friday afternoon, it took him an hour to get over there. Fifteen minutes after he left, the translator showed up. He had been waiting at Kmart. And then he thought, well, so he, and uh, so we tried to get on the CB and the guy couldn't hear. And so it was almost sundown when he got back and he says, he's not there. I know. I says, he's here. And... Uh, I thought, maybe the Lord will really bless we can get through the border like that. And so I said to the translator, where's your luggage? He said, well, I left it at home. Home was 15 miles up the border in a little town called Mission. Oh, we're not going to get across the border. So I turned to him 
And I knew he had a little house, he and his wife and his wife's sister and their son who had some kind of disease that he was goofed up, lived there. And I said to this man, we're all going to stay at your house over Sabbath. So he, and he said, well, you got to come out to my house anyway because my wife has made tamales for everybody. Typical Mexican hospitality. So we drove back out to his house, and it was just sundown, so we got everybody together. We had sundown worship. Then we ate tamales. And uh, he got on the phone and started calling around to see if there's other people where he could stay because we had 50 of us. And right across the street, they were building a new house and had a roof on it, but no windows or doors. And the guy who liked the ice cream and three or four kids said, we'll go sleep in that house. In the meantime, he'd got a hold of the, of the pastor of the Spanish church, and it was only about two miles away. And they have a huge gymnasium. I'll tell you about the gymnasium later. He says, rest even go stay in the gymnasium. So we went over there, and we had a nice Friday night, and we all put our sleeping bags and mattresses down in the gym, and there were bathrooms there that had showers. So it was a nice place to stay on Sabbath. Are you with me? So Sabbath went well. And uh, then I said on Saturday night, once you get to bed early, we have missed the orientation. But if we get up really early, we can make it to our project right on time. We just missed the orientation, but we can get to our project on time. So we all went to bed early on Saturday night and we woke up at six o'clock and got our breakfast. And I told the others that were staying with the translator and staying in the empty house, be over by 6 o'clock. So at 6 o'clock, they showed up, and the guy who liked the ice cream was pulling his trailer, and as he pulled into the parking lot, there was a dip there, and as he went through the dip, he broke the hitch on his trailer. And so we got in the phone book and kept calling around. We found a place that would do welding, and I said, well, we'll wait here until you. So he took off with his broken hitch with a trailer parked over here, and he went out, and he got back out at 8 o'clock. And so we were two hours behind and in the meantime, I, had gone, I hadn't had time to ask the translator for the uh, insurance papers. So while he was gone, I asked him for the insurance papers. We couldn't find them. Look, look, it turned out they were in the truck with the, had the broken hitch. So when he came back at 8 o'clock, we looked, and sure enough, the insurance paper there, and I got them out, and I started looking at them and discovered that the insurance guy had given our translator somebody else's papers, the only vehicle that was insured correctly, that we had the right papers for, was the guy who had ate the ice cream. And, and for the bus and the other pickup, it was somebody else's. It was somebody else's. So I thought, we've got to get the right papers. So I got on the phone, the telephone number in here, and called and got a recording. We're closed on Sunday. Oh, well, there wasn't another telephone number, just that one. So we got the phone book out from McAllen and all those areas around there, and we called every Sanborn in the telephone book. There were 40 of them. And we got a hold of most of them, and they all said, no, that's not us. That's not us. One number was busy. That number was busy from 9 o'clock in the morning till noon. And uh, there was a person there who's more forceful than Pastor Stoffer. He got on the phone and he called the telephone company and he said, this is an emergency. Can you break into this number? So the phone, they did, and it was a lady talking to her daughter who lived six blocks away and they had talked for three hours and their name was Sanborn. And, and we got a hold of them and they say, no, my name is Sanborn, but that's not me. But Sanborns don't earn, own it anymore. They sold it to somebody else and they kept the name Sanborns, but I know who it is. And so we got the number and about 12.30, we got a hold of the guy, and I took the phone, and I controlled my voice, and I told him who I was, and I says, you have given us the wrong papers. 
Well, he says, you go on to your destination, tell me the address, and I will mail it to you. And I said, sir, we can't get across the border without those papers. Oh, he says, that's right. Well, meet me at the office in an hour. I thought, an hour? Why not 15 minutes? So at 1.30, we got down to the office, and I thought, we'll get these papers, and then we'll get down, and we'll get across the border, and I, may, I don't know what we're going to do. But anyway, we got there, and we got the papers, and we drove across the bridge and stopped at the customs house where we have to get papers. You can't go any farther into Mexico. And they hassled us, and they hassled us, and the kids had been able to get their uh, papers stamped so they could go, and the two trucks get theirs, but the bus... They, they, your bus, we're not going to let your bus. And we argued with them for a couple hours, and the translator tried to bribe them, and they say, no, no, your bus cannot go. I'm about to cry. I mean, we had, some of you probably sent money for kids to go on the trip. We'd raised several thousand dollars going on this trip, and here we couldn't even get across the border with the bus. And so I thought, well, there's another little town up. Maybe we can go up there because that had happened with Elder Hominick. We had to go to three towns to get through. And so I said, let's get everybody back on the bus. We'll go back across into McAllen, and we'll go up the border. And by this time, it was noon. And, well, it was, wait, it was past noon. It was 3 o'clock, and they hadn't had lunch yet. So they're getting ready to lynch me because they're all getting hungry. Three-fourths of them are teenagers. So I said, we'll go back. I didn't want to feed them in Mexico because I heard if you eat from street vendors in Mexico, you can get sick. How many have ever heard that? So I said, don't buy anything of these street vendors. You're going to say, we'll go back into McAllen. We'll find a Taco Bell. We'll all eat the Taco Bell. And so we drove it back into McAllen, and the pickup that didn't eat ice cream got stopped at a red light where we didn't. And he made a wrong turn. And he got on his CB, and we could hear him, but he couldn't hear us. You want to make this long story a little bit shorter? We didn't see him again until 6 o'clock that night because he was driving around trying to find Taco Bells, and there were several, and we were trying to find, but we never got the same Taco Bell at the same time. And I wouldn't stop and let him eat because I had to find this guy. And finally, I said, let's go back out to the church 15 miles up the border toward where we were going to go to the town. Mabel come there, and we both pulled into the parking lot at the same time. We didn't have any food. So I said, well, I don't want to go back to McAllen. Just go on the border. Surely we'll find a Taco Bell at the border. We didn't. At 7 o'clock, we arrived in the little town where we thought we could get across the border. And by this time... Everybody was mad at me. I was driving the bus because they were all hungry. It had been six, it had been 12 hours since they'd had anything to eat. And I saw a big grocery store, and I said, let me see if they have a deli. So I went in, I found a deli, and I said, how long is it going to take you to make baked potatoes for 47 people? That's actually how many there were. He says, 15 minutes. I knew it in 15 minutes. Fine. I went back out the bus. I says, in 15 minutes, we're going to have baked potato supper for everybody. In the meantime, walk around, do what you want. Well, they all made a beeline for the store, and they went to the deli, and they started buying junk food. Fifteen minutes later, I went to the deli to see if our potatoes were ready, and he said, sorry, they're not ready. I've been too busy. That was my kids buying stuff. We had to wait for another half hour to get those potatoes, and by that time, the kids were all full of junk food, so we ate cold baked potatoes for two days after that because they didn't want them that night. <laughs> Finally, we got down to the border, and I'm thinking, you know, it's starting to get dark, and I thought, hope we can get through well, we, we were hassled for three more hours at the border, and finally at 10 o'clock, we got the paper straightened out. They were going to let us in. Well, I didn't want to go back into Texas and have to do I didn't realize once we had the papers, you could go back and forth. But I thought, I don't want to go back. I don't want to do it through, through this hassle again. So we're going to go on. Now, how many have ever been, traveled in Mexico? You'll discover that on the little brochure they give you, it says, don't travel in Mexico at night. 
because the cows don't have taillights and, and often the fences are down. And sometimes the Mexicans don't have taillights. But I thought, we're going to drive down to the youth camp. We can sleep there. There's beds we can sleep there. And so we started driving. It was terrible. Dark. The map wasn't right. We got lost several times. And the last 50 miles, from 2 o'clock to 3 o'clock, we were driving this real narrow road that had no shoulder. And I'm driving this bus, and it's, it's orange picking time. And these big trucks picked orange during the day. And every five minutes, I'd pass a truck, and I stayed wide awake because I thought, we'll all be killed. Finally, we arrived almost to the camp, and I had, we had come, not I, there was other drivers, but we'd come 2,000 miles, and we missed our corner to the camp by one block. And if you've ever been to the, the camp there near Montemorelos, it's, it's down along a stream, but it's a real steep hill going down. And I turned the corner into this driveway where I thought the camp was, and I drove down, and rather than winding up at the camp, the road just ends in a swamp. And all of a sudden, all I could see in front of the bus and the headlights was swampy water and moss and old tires floating and the front tires starting to sink in the mud. And I've got, and there's a narrow little road, and I've got two pickups behind me, both of them with trailers. So it took us a while to get everything turned around, and I backed, the, I couldn't turn the bus around. I had to back two blocks up this really steep hill. We went the other block, we went down the other hill, and we, sure enough, this was the right one. We got down to the camp, but everything was locked. Well, the dining room was open air. I thought, we'll just go into the dining room and lay our sleeping bags out on, on this open air. Just had a roof over it, open sides. And we, had to, we couldn't get the bus in, but the, the gate was locked. But it was enough we could squeeze through with our stuff. And, of course, 47 people, three-fourths of them teenagers, made a lot of noise. And bless their hearts, they woke up the caretaker, <laughs> which I wouldn't do. But they woke him up, and he came. And through the translator, he found out who we were. So he unlocked the cabins. And we had a nice sleep from 4 o'clock to 8 o'clock in the morning. We slept. And we all had cold showers. And we got up at 8. And I says, now, we're, we're already going to be a day late. Because it was another 8-hour drive from the youth camp at Montemarillos down to this little town of Wizachi. I thought, well, we're going to be 24 hours late, but we will go. So we got up at 8 o'clock, ate our breakfast, got on the bus, and headed out. Now, the, as long as this was in March, so in the United States it was cool, but Mexico it was hot. And that's when we discovered that the radiator of this bus wasn't quite up to snuff. Now, if you're starting to overheat, what, can anybody tell me what you do to, to cool the engine off? You turn on the heaters because that, that's another radiator. And the heaters ran down the side, but it's 90 degrees. We're driving in the desert, and we've got the heaters on full blast. So everybody is standing in the aisle because the heat is on the sides and all the windows are open and stuff is blowing around and there's a sandstorm, there's a wind going on and we're driving down this desert and everybody's hot and mad at me and uh, we finally arrive at our destination about 5 o'clock that evening and uh, I knew where we were going to stay. We were all going to stay at the elder's house. He had a little house, two bedrooms with an outhouse, one-seater outhouse with no door on it and one shower head. And when we got there, the wind was still drawing, blowing, and we were staying in tents. But he was a, a mechanic, and he kept spare parts in his backyard in the form of old cars. And so to make the, the, the stakes wouldn't hold in the sand, so we had to tie our tents to the junk cars to keep them from getting blown away. And while they were setting up camp, I says, I'm going to go look at the building site, because I had been there with Elder Hobbit two years before, and we'd gotten the walls part way up. 
but the floor hadn't been poured, and we were going to do the floor and the roof while we were there. And so I drove over to the church because we had sent $2,000 ahead of us so they could have, you know, cement and sand and gravel and, and material for the, for the floor and the roof. And I got out there. There was no material. And the local people had seen this empty building there because it had no doors or windows, didn't have a roof, and the walls were up partway, and they'd just been throwing trash in there. So I knew we were going to clean all that trash out. Well, anyway, I went over to the building that they were using for an old church because we'd held meetings there. And the only building material I could find there was three sacks of concrete that we had put there two years before and nothing else. And I thought, where's our material? How can we have a building project? We don't have any building material. So I drove back over to the head elder's house where we were going to stay. And while I was gone, the pastor from 60 miles away had come. And he got the translator, and he basically said to me this. Oh, by the way, when I get really stressed, my eyelids fill up with fluid, and this eye was going shut from stress. And I kept saying to my wife, I'll never do this again as long as I live. How many have heard I don't like being in charge? I don't like all the stress. And so we got back, and here's no building material. And the pastor comes with the translator, and he says, Didn't you get my letter? You weren't supposed to come. There's nothing here for you to do. I hope I didn't seem rude, but I couldn't say anything. That was, that, was, that was the final blow. And I turned around, and I walked through the junkyard, climbed through the barbed wire fence, out into the desert, out behind the cactus plants, and I cried. And I said, Lord, why are you letting this happen to me? You know I didn't want to be in charge, and I did everything I could to make sure everything, and it's just all fallen apart. Nothing's going good. And now we got here with all these kids and we spent all this money that people have donated and there's nothing to do. Why are you letting this happen to me? And he answered me in my mind. The Holy, how many know the Holy Spirit can put thoughts in your mind? He answered me. And I'll tell you what he said. He said, Bob Stoffer, all your life, when you were doing something that was my will, if it got really hard, you would think, well, this must not be God's will. Because if it was God's will... It wouldn't be this hard, and you would quit. I've got you in a situation where you've got 46 other people. You can't quit. What are you going to do? He didn't tell me what to do. He just says, I know. I planned this. What are you going to do? And just the thought that God knew ahead of time this was going to happen, and he says, I've got you in a place where I can teach you a lesson. What are you going to do? I dried my eyes. I went back through the desert and climbed back through the barbed wire fence and through the junk cars, and I got the staff together. I told them the situation. I says, we've come all this ways. We've spent all this donated money. We've got these kids. We are not just going to play around. We're going to do something. So we sat down and planned what to do the next day because it was time to go to bed. The next day, I says, we're going to have to build shower stalls because one shower head is not enough for 47 people. So we built showers, and I told everybody ahead of time, bring a five-gallon bucket because there was a big open place out where you could go dip water at. You wouldn't want to drink it, but you could take a bath in it. And so you'd go out, and you'd get your thing, and you'd go in this place where we built these. We, had the, we brought the lumber and the plastic, and we put up plastic. And you'd take your five-gallon bucket in there and your cup, and you'd pour it on you, and that was your shower. How many of that sounds pretty good? So I said, we're going to have a crew build the shower stalls, and then uh, we're going to oil. I need to tell you something that's icky. How many can, how, how many can stand something icky? If you've ever been to Mexico, you'll find out that the plumbing in Mexico is different than the plumbing in America. It's smaller. 
Therefore, if you're ever along the border, you'll go into a public restroom and every stall will have a wastebasket there. And the toilet paper doesn't flush. It goes in the wastebasket. When the wastebasket gets full, or there'll be a box or there'll be something, they take it out and put it in the incinerator and they burn it. But not all of it burns if the wind is blowing. Some of it blows around. And so as you would walk around, when I was out in the desert, here was bits and pieces of used toilet paper hanging on the cactus and on the fences and stuff. And we were going we to have a crew. We were going to do a vacation Bible school. So I says, we'll go over there. The first thing we do, I brought gloves. I knew the situation. I brought rubber gloves for them. I says, we're going to clean up the churchyard so we can play games with the kids and do stuff. So I sent a crew to the church the next morning to get ready, set up for vacation Bible school and, and do a little trash-a-thon cleaning up. And I sent a crew over to the church. I said, it's going to take us a day just to clean that out. And we knew we were going to pour floors, so we had bought long stakes. I knew with the sand we had to have stakes. I mean, poured concrete. You have to have stakes, and you have to have them all level so that you pour the concrete and you screed it off the top. How many know what I'm talking about? And we had a Mexican transit. How many know what a Mexican transit is? It's a piece of clear plastic tubing. I bought one, 60 feet long, and you fill it with water. How many know that water and gravity that seeks its own level? You get one stake right where you want it, and you hold one end of the clear plastic tube there, and you take the other end out, and you say, a little higher, a little higher. Okay, that's right, because the water here is the same as the water there, and they drive that stake. And, that's, and so I knew it was going to take all day to do that. So we had a crew over there hauling stuff out, leveling out the floor, driving. It took all day to do that. I had a crew. Oh, and then I had another crew. I had the translator go over to the local high school, and they teach English in the high school like we teach Spanish here. And, but how many know that the Spanish vowels are pronounced different than the English vowels are pronounced? So they could show them how to read it, but the teacher couldn't tell them what it sounded like. So the translator says, we've got a bunch of American teenagers here, and they'll come over and let the kids know what the words sound like. How many think that sounds neat? So we sent a crew over to the high school, and they taught English, and the teacher loved it, and the kids loved it, and their kids became friends with our kids, though they couldn't speak with each other, but they had a great time. So that first day, we were all busy, and the mission trip was just chugging along nicely, and I thought, but what are we going to do the next day? Because they had the church done, what are we going to do the next day? Well, the Mexican members saw, boy, these people came here. There's nothing for them to do, but they came for business. And to this day, I do not know where they got the money. But that night, while we were eating supper over by the church, we'd taken everybody over there. We'd have supper by the church. And uh, they start bringing in sand and gravel and sacks of cement. And so I says, we're going to do this. Now, we didn't have a mixture. We just had a, a mortar box. And I thought, here's the church. It's 24 feet wide by 60 feet long. And we're going to pour this. We'll mix it. It might take it all the rest of the week, but we're going to... So the next day, we got this mortar box ready. And by supper, we had poured a swatch 20 feet wide, 24 feet wide, and 6 feet long. We had 54 feet to go before the... Well, we work hard. But while we are eating supper, the head elder was checking around, and he came with his old pickup with an old quarter-yard gas cement mixer behind his truck. And he said, this will go faster. But while we were looking at it and think, oh, this is great, he says, but we can only have it tonight. It's got to be back by 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. So as the kids finished supper, I got them together. I told them the situation. I says, how many of you kids would be willing to work all night? We've got this cement mixture. We can only have it tonight. It's got to be back in the morning. How many know what the teenager said? Yeah, yeah, let's go for this. You know? So uh, the... Elder went out and found a generator and some wire and strung up some lights. And we worked that night. And by this time, the Mexicans that lived around there, remember, church, they'd gotten off work and they came. 
And how many have been with a big group and you can't understand everybody and you're laughing and you're, you're pouring water and you're mixing concrete and pushing and everybody's just working. You haven't been in a situation like that. And it's hard work, but it's fun. Have you done that? And so, boy, we were working away and they were pouring concrete and leveling it off and screening it off and troweling it off and, and uh, pouring water in the cement. And every 15 minutes, we had to stop the cement mixer because the oil was running out. We had to put more oil in every 15 minutes. But sometime in the middle of the night, we got done. We had finished, and the floor was level, and, and uh, we were all having a little celebration. And we were all tired, halfway drunk from lack of sleep, laughing and acting goofy. And I loaded the kids and our crew on the bus, and we were headed back to where we were going to stay. And there were other people besides the kids. We had a lady in her 70s who had gone along. And uh, while we were going back, she was sitting right behind where I was driving. And she says, you know, for the amount of money I paid to come on this trip, I could be in Hawaii right now with my senior citizens group. And she was only half joking. Well, we got back, and I let the kids sleep extra long that morning. And when they got up, we, I got them together for worship after we had breakfast. And I told them what this lady said, that for the amount of money she paid, she could have been Hawaii. I said, how many of you would be rather sitting on Waikiki right now, drinking a pina colada, than in this dirty little town with a used toilet paper blowing around, working and paying, not getting paid to work, paying to work? And they all almost yelled at me, no, we'd rather be right here building this church for these people. And I cried again. And we spent the last two days of the, of the trip stuck in the walls, and we laid the, the, uh, the concrete blocks up level. And I thought, well, they can do, do the... And, what, and then we found out what had happened with our money. They had hired a crew from Monterey to, to, from Monterey to come down and put a different kind of roof on than what we were going to put on that cost more money. And that's where the $2,000... And on Friday, the roofing crew showed up. So while we were finishing laying brick and stucco and they were putting on the roof, and then we had Sabbath, and we'd had meetings each night, and we had some baptisms. They had a horse tank there, and we baptized them in that little church. And I had a patch over mine because my eyes stayed swelled up for another five days after that. And uh, then Sunday morning, we got up and we went home. Several years later, I, oh, I, how many heard me say I told my wife, at least 20 times, I will never do this again. As long as I live, so help me. I've never had so much stress. I hate stress. I'll never do this again. And two weeks after I got home, I started planning the next one. I did 10 of them. And several years later, we had done one. We had 50 people, and we went to Monterey, and everything went really well on that trip. And by the time the week was over, we had one building up and the roof on it and another building up ready to put the roof on. And on the way home, you guys know Robbie Allen, don't you? He was my right-hand man on all those trips. And on the way home, he'd been with me on the first one too when I had so much trouble. On the way home, I said to Robbie, that was a good trip, wasn't it? He says, yeah, that was a good trip. But he says, you know that first one where we had all the trouble? I said, yeah. He says, that was my favorite one. I said, why? He says, well, it was like playing a game of basketball and you're behind the whole time. You're never ahead. And at the last second of the game, someone makes a wild shot and wins by one point. He says, that whole trip, it looked like it was going to just fall flat. But he says, we stuck with it and pulled it off. And by the time it was over, we'd had a successful trip. Now, when I was recruiting people to go on these other trips, I'd go around and give worship talks. I'd tell this story. And we never had as much trouble again. And I had kids go with me to these trips where we had a good trip. And when it was over, they were disappointed. They thought, I thought we was going to have some adventures and we were going to have some trouble. It was too easy. Now, why did I tell you this story? 
Is there a time of trouble coming? Yes. And the text that I read you is, he that endures to the end shall be saved. And you see, all my life, and probably a good share of yours, we've always thought if it's God's will, you know, it's God's going to kind of make plans for you ahead. Let me give you an illustration of this. Here's Mary and Joseph. And the angel come to, to Mary and told her, you're going to conceive, and it's going to be the son of the Most High. Joseph wanted to get rid of her because she was pregnant, and he knew it wasn't his baby. And so the angel came to him and quoted out of Isaiah, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. And so both Mary and Joseph realized this is a miraculous thing. This is the Messiah going to be born. And the course of prophecy says he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And so here, the last week of her pregnancy, the law goes out, and they have to travel 90 miles from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. Now, how would many of you think that if God was behind this and this baby was going to be the Messiah and the baby was God, how many think that God would arrange it so it wouldn't be hard? Hmm? And they probably thought, well, the baby is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, so surely God has kind of made arrangements down there. So they get down to Bethlehem, and there were no arrangements made at all. And they go from motel to motel, and they all say no vacancy. And the only place that they can have give birth to the son of the highest was in a barn. And, and in the songs they sing, they make it sound like, you know, the, the sweet-smelling hay. I have been in a barn where animals are, and it's not a sweet-smelling situation. It's not sanitary at all. And had I been Joseph at that time, I would have looked up and I said, Lord, how come you're letting all this happen? Just like I did. How many think that you might have done that? And then to top it off, the, the king is trying to kill the baby and he can't go back to, to Nazareth where his business is, where he can make a living. He's got to flee to Egypt where he doesn't know anybody and he doesn't have a job and he doesn't have anywhere to stay and he's got a wife with a new baby. How many think God knows what he's doing? Yes. But God doesn't always make it easy because God is a good parent. And a good parent doesn't always make it easy for their kids because he wants these kids to be tough. Am I right? And you see, there's a time of trouble and God is wanting us to get ready for it. And just like the scriptures, endure hardness like a good soldier of Christ. And if it's God's will, don't expect it to be easy. Now, God promises he will give you strength but he is not going to make it any easier than he absolutely has to. He's going to make it just as hard so that you think you can hardly bear it. But you say, I believe that God wants me to do this, and though it's hard, I'm going to do it anyway. Don't expect the Christian life to be easy. Amen? Because God is going to let you go through hardship. You go back and you read in the Bible, and you will discover that God didn't make it easy for Mary and Joseph. He didn't make it easy for Noah. They put out a movie several years ago about Noah's Ark. It made me, how many saw that? It made me mad because here's Noah getting the trees and he has all this logs. He got to turn into lumber and it wasn't going fast enough. So he woke up one morning here. God had turned it all into lumber overnight. And he's building the ark in this movie and he's not going fast enough. And here he's just got the frame, but he hasn't got the interior done. And he wakes up next morning, God has come and finished for him overnight. How many think that sounds like God? How many think that sounds like the God that we would like to serve? That he makes easy, right? Come on. How many say, Lord, make this easy? We don't want to have a hard religion. But a soft religion makes soft Christians. Amen? And so God didn't do any of these. He didn't make Noah do anything that Noah couldn't do, but he made Noah do some stuff that Noah thought he probably couldn't do. 
And I've discovered that with God. He will put you in a situation where he thinks it's impossible. And he just says, you can do it. And you think, well, if God thinks I can, maybe I can. And when you get done, you are a better person for it. How many know that that's true? And I have had people say, I don't want to join the Adventist church. It's too hard to be an Adventist. And I had a pastor friend who was studying with a lady, and she says, it's too hard to be an Adventist. I don't think I want to be an Adventist. And he says, well, you probably wouldn't make a good Adventist anyway. We better stop studying. And she just had the particular nature that made her mad. And she later was baptized. Oh, you think I can't do it? I'll show you. How many think that our religion shouldn't be an easy religion? Amen. Let me read you a couple of texts here, and then I'm going to let you go eat lunch because I'm hungry too. Isaiah 40, 29. He gives power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increases their strength. It doesn't say he makes the job easier. He says he strengthens them. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. The young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord, in other words, they, they don't give up. All right, Lord, you want me to do it? I'm going to do it. They don't quit. They wait. And they keep doing what God wants to do. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Amen? Another text. Deuteronomy 31, 6. Be strong and have a good courage. Fret, fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that goeth before thee. He will not fail thee. He will not forsake thee. Joshua 9. How many have ever sung Joshua 9? Behold. Oh, here it is. Have not I commanded thee? That's a command. Be strong and of a good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever they go. And that's all God told me. I'm with you. Now, what are you going to do? Uh, Isaiah 41, verse 10. We've sung this one. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will hold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Psalms 27, 14. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. And he shall strengthen thy heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Psalms 31, 24. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all ye that hope in the Lord. Isaiah 41, verse 6. They helped everyone his neighbor, and everyone said to his brother, Be of good courage. Don't expect it to be easy. In fact, I read where Ellen White says, We can only expect between now and the end, we can only expect that it's going to get harder to be a good Adventist. Amen? It's not going to get easier. It's going to get harder. But he's promised, I will give you the strength to meet what you have to do. Let's bow our heads. Dear Jesus in heaven, I have read what your servant Ellen White says, that when we get to heaven and we review the life that we went through in this earth, we will recognize that some of our biggest disappointments and hardest situations were among our greatest blessings. So, Father, in my prayer today, I do not ask that you make things easy for me or anybody else. I just ask that you'll give us the strength, but you don't give us the strength until we need it. Thank you for what you've done. Help us be like you. Amen. Dear Jesus in heaven, thank you for this hymn that says if we go through fiery trial, the only thing you allow us allow it for is to get rid of those things in our life that we wish we were rid of. Please each bless each one of us, if need be, through hardships. But Jesus, we want to be like you. 
This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.